0: We are now uh, deep into a study called God-Designed Marriage. We're actually uh, nearing the end. Next week is going to be our last week uh, in this study. And uh, so this is the second-to-last message we're looking to build through this series um, strong and healthy marriages which make for strong and healthy homes and nations and a world. So, we're actually focusing on the home, the marriage and its impact on the home. And to do that, uh, we've discovered that we have to build our homes on the foundational rock of God's Word and not the sand of our own ideas. And it's on that foundation that uh, we've been placing different building blocks. And uh, today we're on building block number six that we're calling the children. And, uh, I'll have you know that this is exactly what I want to talk about at 33 years old with my oldest child being six. I just, you know, when I surrendered my life to the Lord and said, God, I'm going to quit chewing, I'm going to give you my mouth. And you speak through me, right? This, my mouth is yours. I'm going to give up this tobacco junk, and I'm going to speak for you. I had no idea that in a few years he'd put me in a pulpit talking to a bunch of old people about parenting. Okay? Surrendering your life to the Lord is exciting, right? So have mercy on my soul, would you? Okay, Talking about parenting, I know how much we love to be told how to parent. But uh praise God I have His Word, right? And so I'm going to focus on the Word and what it says, not just what I have to say. If it sounds like it came from me, I, I pray that that thought would just disappear forever in your mind. And uh, only retain what's good. But uh anyway, if you get married, right, chances are you're going to have children. And believe it or not, raising children can be... Incredibly easy, and such a breeze, right? No, it's incredibly difficult, it's hard, it's extremely exhausting, nothing pushes you to your limits like raising children, it pushes you into a whole new uh, area, of, of a whole new level of Christ-likeness and sacrifice, and you, you learn things about you that you didn't know before, like how selfish you were, and... and, and uh, you know, that, that's hard on a marriage, right? Raising children, because it is, it's so difficult. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's the most delightful and difficult thing I think you'll ever do. It's delightful and difficult. You know, it's, it's the most amazing feeling when those kids are born, and you just, you love them with a love that you, you can't even express it. It's inexpressible love that you have for those kids. And at the same time, it is so challenging. And... uh that, again, it's going to be hard on the marriage. If your husband and wife get so lost in raising kids that because they do, they demand so much time. If they don't cultivate their own relationship or if the you know the husband and the wife are, aren't on the same page in their approach to parenting, raising children is going to be difficult on that marriage. It's going to be hard on it. And so we're going to see a little bit about What God's Word has to say about this family element, so we can be raising children together God's way. Okay, but before we look at married couples as parents, I want us to think uh, or to look at married couples and their relationship to their parents. Is that if that makes sense? Okay, because through this we're going to see the priority of the marriage bond uh, over our other relationships the marriage bond has the priority over your relationship with your kids, over your relationship with your parents, okay? And uh, that's another aspect of child raising, isn't it? You raise them up, push them out the nest, right? They get married, and you have to learn to let them be independent, right? So that's another aspect of seeing them grow up and get married themselves. And uh, so anyway, first, our first heading is married couples and their parents, and it's uh, the, the the headings today are somewhat flexible as you're going to see, but we've discussed in detail uh, Genesis two twenty two. It's where we get this ceremonial exchange between the you know the the father of the bride and the the new husband to be. The father brings his daughter, walks his daughter down the aisle to her new husband. There's this exchange that takes place, right? Uh, that's modeling Genesis 2.22, where the father, God the father, brought made Eve and brought her to Adam, and the father uh, gives his daughter to her new husband, and when he does that, he's releasing her from that familial bond, that family bond. And uh, Genesis 2.24 says this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and what? cleave to his wife, be glued to his wife, be joined to his wife. So both the husband and the wife leave their parents and they cleave to each other. They're now independent. We, we call this leaving and cleaving. And leaving and cleaving are two uh, factors necessary, foundational factors necessary for a healthy marriage. That's why it's in Genesis. It's foundational. We need this. We need to understand this. Um, it's foundational both for your marriage when you get married and it's foundational for your children when they get married. You need to understand they're now independent, right? So married couples leave establishing relative independence from their parents and then they cleave and they're joined to their spouse as they start their own new family. Make sense? Married couples must leave and cleave to each other, leave their parents, cleave to each other, quit relying on your parents and you embrace each other and you rely on one another. The marriage relationship now takes precedence over the relationship to the parents. Okay, so as long as we live, we are to find ways, let me balance this out, we're to find ways to honor our parents, right? Right? as long as we're children, we'll always be children of somebody, we're going to find ways to honor our parents. I think we're going to seek to foster intergenerational uh, ties and bonds. But once you get married, the bond of marriage does take precedence over the bond of procreation to your parents. You establish some relative independence from both sets of parents, emotionally, financially, physically, uh, and in other ways. And this is important because... Uh, if, I don't know, spouses are just, they're so often, you can relate to this, I know you can, you, you, we're so often tempted to bring our parents into some sort of situation that we're dealing with. Maybe it's an argument or a major decision that we're making. They were, we're tempted to call mom and dad and bring them into what we're going through, and it can create more conflict. You remember Scott Mathis brought up this example last week, the example of a wife calling her mom to complain about her husband. It's just, He said it's just fueling the fire, whatever's going on, right? Uh, it's just fueling the fire. And um, God's design is for a couple to create their own new family, for them to work together now. You're going to establish new traditions. You're going to establish, you're going to start new family traditions. You're going to start... Uh, New household rules. You're going to have your own household rules. You're going to have have a new direction for your family. Maybe you might you might still you should still go to your parents for advice and help. And you're going to seek to foster intergenerational family bonds. But ultimately, the married couple is is independent of that. And we need to raise them with that in mind. Uh, one of the reasons I want to bring this up in in the parenting block is because it demonstrates. The priority of the marriage relationship over all other horizontal relationships, including our relationship with our kids, the marriage has to be built to outlast the kids. You have to build your marriage to outlast the kids. You never want your marriage to become child-centric. You know what I mean. You don't want your marriage to revolve around your kids, your life to revolve around your kids, the kids, the kids, the kids, right? How are you today? Oh, my kids, right? That gets old, doesn't it? Have you ever heard someone talk that way? How are you today? Well, my kids. I asked about you, not your kids. Okay, we can become child-centric. You can start to live through your kids, and if that happens, I think it's a symptom of an unhealthy marriage and what's going to happen when those kids move out and you move into the empty nest season it's going to be the empty nest season is either a delight or devastation okay it's either delightful or devastating depending on whether you've built your marriage to outlast your kids okay just as think of it this way your story is subservient to god's story right But just as your story is subservient to God's story, so your kids' stories are subservient to your story as a couple. Okay? And that might sound a little harsh, but think about it. Okay? The stronger that your marriage is, the story of your marriage is, the more secure your children are going to be, the more secure they're going to feel when they know. Mom and dad have it together. They're working on their marriage, right? If, if I'm a child, I don't like it when mommy and daddy go out on dates and ditch me with some babysitter, right? You know, my when I was a kid, my parents had this babysitter who rode her horse three miles to our house, and you know what she did for fun? She tied us up. She calf-roped us, right? That was her fun. That was my babysitter. But uh, I don't know why I remember that. Actually, I know why I remember that. But... If I'm, if I'm a kid, I don't like it when mom and dad go on dates and leave me with the babysitter. But deep down, I'm not going to say this, but deep down, I'm going to feel more secure because I know they love each other, right? And I know that they're working on their marriage. Okay. Now let's, let's kind of like turn the gear a little bit and let's focus more on the married couple as parents. Okay, The married couple as parents. It's important for the husband and wife to, as much as possible, be on the same page in their parenting approach, their parenting style. In marriage, you've got two people coming together from two different families, two different family backgrounds, maybe two different cultures, even. And uh, that's tough. Because one spouse wants to raise the kids this way, the other spouse wants to raise them that way. For example, the husband's parents might have disciplined him, right, by spanking. And and, uh, his dad might have had a leather belt that had the words engraved on it, uh, I need the every hour. And uh, actually, let's pretend that the husband is just over-disciplined, you know, in anger, and never reaffirmed of his father's love. So uh, that's, that's what he was raised with. And then let's pretend that he marries a wife whose parents basically took the self-esteem approach. We're not going to discipline at all. Uh, now, assuming they will both naturally carry these familiar but different forms of parenting into their own marriage, and they're raising children, that's going to cause conflict, right? I was reminded of this the other day, my wife and I, uh, we hiked Harney Peak for our anniversary. This was uh, I should know how long ago this was. It was our anniversary, uh, just over a month ago, and, and we 'd we'd, we'd reached the summit and we sat down to eat our lunch and as we 're eating our lunch there 's this this couple frantically looking for their little girl. This little girl had wandered off, and no doubt like their parents were just like freaking out like where 's this child? you know like there 's steep drop offs, you know you could fall off the face of this thing. And uh so so they're worried sick about her and anyway it they didn't she didn't wander off long but they find her and uh man they this this mom I mean she laid into this little girl I mean with like inappropriate words and uh, and uh, and, uh it, it wasn't appropriate but there was a high school girl and there were some high school girls who who were up there too and they were on a trip I guess but I I overheard them talking, and they said, well, that doesn't sound like modern parenting to me. I'm triggered. She literally said that. I'm triggered. That's not modern parenting. And I just in my mind, I laughed. Wait until you become a kid. Or you become a parent. Your kids are going to trigger you to do the same thing, whether you want to or not, because you're a sinner. Right? And so, <laughs> um, isn't it funny? You're always a perfect parent, right, until you actually become one. But... Uh, so there's that example, right? The difference between like old school parenting, modern parenting. There is a modern parenting, right? Self-esteem movement. But uh, there was another time, I, I won't forget, my wife was uh, chatting with her nurse. Uh, I think she was getting a physical of some kind and she's talking to her nurse and they started talking about parenting and and this, this older woman said, I tried doing the whole uh, be your kid's friend approach. She said, but it didn't work when that, friend became a teenager. She said I actually had to be a parent. So there are different, I share all this jabber because uh, there is different approaches to parenting that we're raised with. Some biblical and some not biblical. And to help us see that the husband and wife uh, uh, will very likely come from different parenting styles, uh, I've shared that. And uh, I, I want, want you to understand that you have to communicate about your parenting style. Right when you're, I mean, as soon as I knew that we were having a child, our first child, we started talking about it. You should start talking about how you're going to parent, how you, because you want to be in unison, you want to be on the same page, you want to have the same biblical goals, the same biblical target. Okay, you have to present a united uh, uh, authority and presence to the children. So that the child doesn't go to dad and get one thing, and the mom he goes to the mom and get another different, you know, another style of parenting, right? You have to be on the same page. If you're not, it's going to cause problems. That child is going to manipulate you, and they're good at that. Okay, isn't that what you did? You were a child once. I'm talking to the old people here, right? What did you do? You went to dad. Dad said no. So then, what did you do? You went to mom, yeah, and mom said yes, and then you caused a conflict between your mom and dad. So you got to be on the same page. you got to be on the same page in parenting. How much wiser, before you say yes to your kid, to go consult with your spouse and say, hey, has, has this child talked to you about this yet or asked you about this? And You know what I mean? Anyway, you got to be on the same page. You've got to learn, as a parent, to release your ideas about parenting And the world's ideas about parenting, just throw that off and just see what God has to say and come together with God's Word as your authority for faith and practice in parenting. Make sense? Let's think this through again. Pretend you have a wife who's virtually undisciplined as a child. She's got the self-esteem parents. She marries a husband who has a dad with that leather belt. He's over-disciplined in anger. Now, if they come together... If when they come together as parents under the authority of God's word, hey, they're raised different ways, but they come together, God's word is now their authority, the husband and wife may differ slightly on what level of discipline to administer to that child, but they can both agree now that discipline is right. Discipline is biblical. Does that make sense? Okay. Thus, the wife who went undisciplined now accepts discipline as something that's biblical, something that's good. And the husband who's over-disciplined in anger doesn't throw off discipline altogether. He now has to learn how to discipline the proper way at the proper time with the proper motivations. He'll have to learn to break the will and not the spirit of that child. And if you want a really good book on that, uh, I think I learned that. Through Michael and Debbie Pearl, it's called To Train Up a Child. It was like the first book I read on parenting. It's fantastic. I don't agree with everything in the book. Don't take everything home with you in it. But it's good, Um, if you want to get that. Anyway, Anyway, the main text that I've got for us today, which is going to give us our basic outline for the rest of the message here, is Ephesians 6.4. It's where we find two major guardrails designed to steer... The, ch- the child to the target that is Christ. That's your target. You want to you direct that child to Christ. And there's two guardrails. You need a guardrail on each side that's, that, that will direct them there. And you find it in Ephesians 6.4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in two things. Number one, discipline, the discipline. And number two, the instruction of the Lord. Let's just focus on that last part. Bring them up in two things, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And I see that as a two-part summarized method of parenting that if we keep in mind and that if we apply, we'll have done our job. We'll have directed them to Christ. We'll have done our part. And from there on, whether they come to know Christ or not, whether they accept Christ or not, we can't make them do that. We'll still know that we've done our job and we have glorified God as parents with the children that He has given us. See this verse as guardrails designed to point your child to Christ. Christ is the destination. Christ is the target. And both of these guardrails are necessary to get them to that destination, to get them to Christ. If a child, think about this, if a child has no discipline, or if a child has discipline but no instruction, say in the gospel, you might raise a great little Pharisee a very disciplined kid, a moral a moral little being, but he's a Christless child and he'll be a hypocrite because he won't know grace. But if you raise a kid with um, maybe, conversely, let's say you're going to go pour instruction into your child. How are you going to pour instruction into your child if that child ain't disciplined? If that child can't sit still and respect authority for teachers to actually pour into them, does that make sense? So you've got to have both of these guardrails to get them to the destination that is Christ, where, like John was talking about this morning, they end up being governed not by external behavior modifications of the law and spanking, but by the Spirit of God in their heart, who removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Right? They become governed not by the discipline anymore, but by a desire, a love for Christ. They're set free by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, set free from the law. Okay, so let's look at guardrail number one. And you always want to aim for the heart, by the way. This is not merely external behavior. You're aiming for the heart. You want that heart to know Christ. But guardrail number one, guide them with proper discipline. Guide them with proper discipline. And first things first, we have to distinguish between discipline and abuse, right? Discipline and abuse are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. We could could define discipline as a measured amount of correction, corrective, uh, I don't know, corrective approach, uh, appropriate to the child's age for the purpose of developing that child's faculties and character. You want to develop that child emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is. To discipline a child is to train a child You're training that child. And this discipline can refer to a a wide variety of disciplinary techniques. Based on teachings and proverbs, the wise parent is going to have multiple levels of discipline that that are designed to curb improper behavior. You may start out with gentle encouragement. This is proverbial teachings here. You might start out with gentle encouragement. Then you might move to uh, education and instruction as needed. Maybe, why would you discipline a child? They don't even know what they did wrong, right? They don't even know why it's wrong. So you you move into education, you move into instruction, and you maybe help them understand the long-term consequences of their behavior. And then you might say, let's say the kid knows what's right and what's wrong, and then they do it anyway. Well, then you're going to move into what? You're going to move into reproof. You're going to correct that child when they're wrong, they know better by now, and if they don't respond, you're gonna start to move into climax mode, right? Uh, you're gonna, you're gonna maybe get into some loss of privilege. If it's a teen, if it's a kid, maybe, okay, you didn't eat your, your, you didn't eat your meal, so you don't get no dessert. Uh, if it's a teenager, right, uh, you out, Past your time, right? Uh, you were supposed to be home an hour ago. No more car, no more cell phone, whatever it is, right? There's a loss of privilege there appropriate to that child's age. Um, man, so you might also uh, climax with the use of the rod. You know, the Bible talks a lot about the rod and and uh, spanking. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But uh, that's what I think God does with us. That's His instruction to us through Proverbs, right? When you sin, does God immediately bring the rod down on your backside? Immediately. Or does He correct you and try to reprove you and get you to repent before He has to bring the rod? So I think discipline starts out gentle, and it just kind of increases in severity until that improper behavior is curved. Let's look at Proverbs 22, verse 15. Lots of Proverbs today. Go through Proverbs sometime and just put a CR every time it has to do with like child-rearing, child-raising. If you're from up up north, you might say child-raising. From Mississippi, you might say child-rearing, right? Because you raise animals, you rear children. So I don't even like saying child-raising. I like to say child-rearing, but I'm going to say raising because that's what we do here. Um, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 20, verse 30. Stripes of wounding scour away evil and strokes. Reach to the innermost parts. So when a child is born, what do you see there? You see that they're not born inherently good. That's modern psychology teaching that. And why I saw a woman at the grocery store the other day praising her screaming child for exercising his lungs. This kid is throwing a temper tantrum in the grocery store, and if you're a parent, you'll get to experience the joy of this. But he's throwing a a tantrum, high-pitched scream, and the grandmother is saying, oh, look at you exercising your lungs. It's like this kid does not need praised; He needs swatted, right? The kid just did not need praise at that point. But she has in her mind, this kid is inherently good, and I need to encourage him. Right? It's weird <laughs> how we operate when we don't know God's Word. But children are born with a sin nature, and, and, and it wants to take them off track all the time. Constantly, We have a flesh, a sin nature that wants to take us off track into all sorts of self-destructive, sinful patterns. And discipline is a guardrail there uh, designed to keep them out of that ditch and to guide them into the peaceful fruits of righteousness, as Hebrews 12 would put it. Proverbs talks a lot about child-rearing with the the use of the rod. How many of you knew the rod? You don't have to raise your hands, but... You knew the rod growing up, and it's it's an old-fashioned thing anymore, but it's biblical. It's hard to tell exactly what the rod is referring to exactly in scripture. You know, like was it a wooden spoon or something? <laughs> you know, or something like that. But uh, suffice it to say, it was some sort of stick, or switch, or scepter, or staff used for administering blows. And the word is used in Isaiah 28, 27, for example, to refer to a staff or stick used to harvest dill. So you would uh, swat the the plants with the stick, and the seeds would fall out and be gathered. Does that make sense? You agitate the the plants, and all the seed falls out, and then you throw the chaff away, and you gather up the seeds. Well, God is figuratively said to use a rod to chastise his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. Remember what he used for a rod? He used Assyria, right? He used Assyria as the rod of his anger to discipline Israel for their rebellion. They'd finally rejected the correction and the reproof, and God says, all right, bring in the rod. He used a foreign nation to judge that nation, and may that not happen to us. Have mercy, God. Our society has rejected This kind of disciplinary technique, and we are seeing the results of it in our society today. It's a society, number one, without a conscience. The conscience is vanishing in America today, the United States. And number two, a lack of respect for authority. You guys see those two things? No conscience, no respect for authority plain as day, and it has made it an act of faith for us to actually use the rod, as Scripture says. It's an act of faith to discipline your kids now. It's not an everyday thing. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Do you love your children? Yeah, of course you do. So you're kind of be careful to discipline them. If you love your children, that's what the Bible says. Punish them with the rod. Save their soul from death. Hebrews twelve. Go ahead and read that later. Um, that's it. Talks about how that's how we know God loves us is because He disciplines us. It actually says He scourges. You remember Jesus was scourged. The Bible says. God scourges every son whom He receives. And that's how we know we're legitimate children. If you can just go off in your sinful ways and you're never chastened by God at all, you're not disciplined by God, maybe that's proof that you're not a legitimate child of God. Because God disciplines every child that is His for their good. Even though it's sorrowful for the moment, yet to those who are trained by it, it says it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Uh, go ahead, and read Hebrews 12 later. It's amazing. Um, Proverbs 23:14 says, punish them with the rod, save their soul from death. Death, there is probably referring to an untimely death as a result of not heeding instruction, not listening to their parents, right? Maybe getting into the wrong crowd, maybe get making a, a very unwise decision, sleeping around with an adulteress. Uh, Proverbs talks about that. My son, don't Cast off my wisdom. Right? Bind it around your neck. Bind your dad's wisdom around your neck. Don't, uh, maybe death is the result of rebelling to the point where civil authorities get involved and execute capital punishment. I think that's what that's referring to. So the rod isn't used to abuse or harm the child in unrighteous anger or something like that. It's not used to, to hurt them. It's used to save them from irreparable harm of, of going their own way and suffering the consequences of it. It's for the benefit of the child, just like God's discipline is for us. And I want to look at this discipline through four filters. Filter number one, discipline with a higher picture. Before you go to discipline, filter it. Filter what you're about to do through four filters. Discipline with a higher picture, okay? Especially when you go to use the rod. The first filter deals with motivation. This is the why? Why am I disciplining in the first place? Is it because my children have made me look bad because they wouldn't sit still up front well or in church? I's because I look bad, or is it because they've actually sinned? Is it because I'm just annoyed by them and I want them to go to their rooms? You know what I mean? Is this really? Uh, just childishness, or is this sin? Ultimately, we we discipline because we want them, I think this is what we should have in our minds, we want them to have a proper respect for authority. And we want them just to be decent human beings in society today, right? A decent human being who respects authority and teachers. If they can't respect you as parents, do you think they're going to respect your teachers? They're going to respect their teachers? You think they're going to respect police officers? No, they're going to say the blue has to go, right? Bring up 2020. Right? Defund the police. That's our generation. They haven't been disciplined. They don't respect you. What makes you think they're going to respect God's authority? They ain't going to respect God's authority. They're going to cast it off. Psalm 2. They're gonna cast off God. They're gonna cast off His ways. You know, I saw this joke. It was weird. It was a joke, right? It was a meme type of thing. And, and this is what I don't want my child to be. Okay, there was a, a man standing before Heaven's gates, and there was a podium there with an angel standing there, and there was a big old book, right? You know, the classic comic drawing, and. Uh, The angel's pointing at the book and it says, it says here you were an atheist. And the person standing in front of the podium says, was. Was an atheist. Okay, like I wish I could change my mind now. But, you know, when we discipline, we're tuning their hearts to the idea that there is a good God who is going to judge them one day. We are instilling in them, we're tuning their conscience to respect Authority, like God's authority, we're tuning them to know the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil. Again, this is why we don't have we have no fear of God in our society today. Discipline is training their conscience, it's it's teaching them reward and consequence, sowing and reaping, and it's very theological. By but Hebrews twelve nine says, by, by by our earthly father's discipline, we learn to respond to our heavenly fathers' discipline. And that's why uh, I think the Father should probably do most of the disciplining. I mean, there's something about the marks of masculinity that take you back to God the Father. The deep voice. God's got a roaring voice. He's strong. He's mighty. He's built for it. Okay, I think that's what God ingrained in the man. I don't think the man has to do all of it, obviously, but I think there should be this expectation, wait till your Father gets home. Why? Because wait until you stand before your Heavenly Father. It's coming. Judgment's coming. So anyway, I was listening to this podcast uh, with Hillsdale College President Larry Arnes, a very wise man, and he recalled how his daughter, he, she desperately wanted to do something that would not benefit her. And so Larry tells his daughter whatever she wanted to do. He didn't say what it was, but he just said no. And she said this, you don't want me to be happy. And uh, Larry replied, you're trying to be happy. But, you need to learn to be good first. If you want to be happy, you need to learn to be good first. Unless our children know what's good, they won't be happy. If our children go, we let our children go their own way to do, to chase happiness, they'll never find it because they're going to be locked into the lust, the drives of the lust, the lust driven sin nature. Right? And how many of you have gone that direction? You've done things your own way and found it wanting, found it empty, found it void. I've done that. But these these limitations, guys, the limitations that we put on their behavior are there to help them flourish, and it promotes spiritual development, it promotes emotional development, short-term pain produces long-term gain. Remember that. And if you feel bad for using the rod... Okay. You just say I just can't do it. Remind yourself, God has equipped your precious little one with a nice thick soft spot on their behind that will not damage the child. Okay? It's like it was designed for it. So they they could feel a sting, but it's not going to damage them. Okay? I call that the the God designed soft spot. Okay? Because, as Derek Kidner says, sometimes it takes more than words to dislodge foolishness. There was an old Egyptian proverb that says, some boys have their ears on their backsides. Right? Some of you were those boys. Filter number two, discern between childish, childishness and sin. Weakness and sin. Okay? Accidentally spilled milk is not sin. And you remember your dad chastising you for spilling your milk on accident. Okay? If they, now if they, they, they take their milk and they chuck it at the wall in anger, then it's sin, right? But spilled milk is not sin. If I, if I tell my kid, my little kid, to go pick up a toy, as you know, pick up these toys, they're getting ready for bed, pick up this toy on your way there and they don't do it, sometimes it's just that they got distracted. It's just childishness, weakness, right, in their flesh. Uh, They see squirrels and get distracted just like a dog. And so do you, by the way. Um, But if it becomes habitual, if I tell them night after night, pick up their toys on their way to their room, if it becomes habitual, I'm going to reprove them, right? Because now they know, but if it becomes habitual, I'm going to reprove them. If it becomes a deliberate ignorance and refusal, then I know it's time to bring the rod. So you have to gauge what's going on and where that child is. Filter number three is assess the situation before disciplining. Assess the situation. I don't know how many times I've failed as a parent because I've charged into my kids' room when there was an argument and just threw them both under punishment. I didn't even ask to see who was right and who was wrong, who was in the wrong. There was no justice there. There was no innocent until proven guilty. Kids need justice too. Okay. I don't know how many times I've you know, just assumed that this child was in the wrong. And they really weren't. You need to talk with them, talk things through before you just say, all right, go to your rooms. You can't throw them all under that bus. They need justice, okay? Filter number four, never discipline out of anger. Sometimes the best thing you can do before you discipline is just take some time to cool down, tell them to go down to the creek and cut their own stick so you can cool down, okay? Pray about it. Cool down, pray about it. Before you do anything, talk it through with them. You might explain the offense if they don't know what they did. Maybe they don't even know what they did. You don't just immediately grab the rod. Explain the offense, help them understand what they did wrong, allow for an appeal, use contracts, let them explain. If you still have to use the rod, what do you do? You apply it firmly and controllingly. You're not out of control, and it's followed up by this. Don't miss this. Reassure them of your love and forgiveness. You don't use the rod and then just leave them hanging and walk out. You've got to reaffirm your love. Tell them you love them. Tell them you forgive them, just like God loves them and forgives them, and how they're, they're, they're your children no matter what they do. It's never out of anger and never separated from your Love. You have to remind them of the gospel. You might even pray with them, help them, ask how you can help them obey. Kids need that. And they, and honestly, guys, kids without discipline, they, you know what they feel? They feel unloved. Kids without discipline feel ignored. They feel like nobody cares about them. And that's part of the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because they don't feel loved. They feel like, I can just do whatever I want. And I'm trying to get attention. I'm trying to get a parent to take notice of me. Somebody, please, take notice of me. I'm rebelling. Can't you see? There's kids out there like that. You run into them at summer camps. But um, discipline. Brings peace, security, and flourishing to a home and a society. And uh, I love this. Get this. Puritan Thomas Fuller said, As for those parents who will not use the rod upon their children, I pray God useth not their children as a rod for them. Whoa, right? Take that one home. Highlight that in your notes. Guardrail number two is to pour instruction into them. Pour instruction into them. Bring up a child in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So children are like empty vessels that we're seeking to pour God's instruction into. Okay? Uh, we don't just want to control them with external behavior modifications. We want the truth of God's word to penetrate their little hearts and uh, transform them from the inside out. And uh guys, uh be patient with me because I am just I have little kids, so I'm always thinking in terms of little, little, little. You know, so I know some of you guys have teenagers, but anyway, I just can't help but think that way, just so you know. But uh, we want to see them transformed from the inside out, just like that song we just sang, uh, which was not planned. From the inside out, Lord, my heart cries out. Anyway, we don't want them to just be controlled by external commandments. You know, the letters engraved on stones, the mosaic law. The Second Corinthians 3 says you want them to be transformed by the tablet of the human heart God's law not externally forcing them but internally from the heart compelling them out of love for Christ I'm convinced that if you are a Christian parent Deuteronomy 6 4 through 9 is a passage that you need to know Deuteronomy 6 4 through 9 I mean if you're a parent print that print those verses out put them on your wall put them on your fridge because this is this is so critical to passing on truth to the next generation. This is actually the Jewish Shema, what they called it. It was the daily confession of faith that they recited every single day because they understood the importance of passing on God's word, God's truth to the next generation. How are we going to do that? What's that look like? Does that mean I just take them to church on Sunday morning and that's it? Is that it? Is that how we pass it on to the next generation? I just drop them off at a wanna and just, you know, that's good enough. No, listen to this. Read this. This is a 24-7 discipleship ministry. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's talking to the parents. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Now impress them on your children. Your children are impressionable. Impress these on your children. Talk about them. When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them uh, on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I like that verse. That's why we put Bible verses up around our house. So we, we memorize them by exposure. But uh, you see the in here, an all-day, everyday formula for passing on the faith to the next generation. All-day, Every day. You get up, eat dinner, rise, go lay down, whatever you're doing, walking along the road, passing on the faith. All day, every day. You see that? And the first method there you see is, number one, live it. You have to model it. You have to model the teaching. It says you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart. How are you going to expect the next generation to love the Lord your God with all their heart? If you don't, you have to model it. Guys, teaching is not only taught from a pulpit like this. It's caught by the way that you live your lives. And that might be the way we absorb most of our teaching. It's just by modeling. Someone modeling it to us. We have to follow Christ. So that's number one. Second, you've got to teach it. Teaching. Everybody is a teacher. You are a teacher. If you're a parent, you're a teacher. And both formally and informally, you should seek to teach your kids God's Word formally. I mean, impress them upon them Bible theology. Teach them Bible theology. Teach them principles from God's words. Teach them God's Word. Sit down and read God's Word together. Do breakfast and devotionals. You know, do breakfast devotionals, evening devotionals, lessons, whatever it is. Get some resources in your arsenal. To help teach your kids. Find creative ways for them to apply scripture. Uh, one of my children is learning biblical finances right now. She'll, she'll work, she'll go to my neighbor's house and she'll, she'll wash his motorcycle for four dollars. We take one dollar, we put it in savings, in a savings jar on her dresser. Take another, another dollar, we put it in giving. Well, it's giving first. We tithe first, right? Tithing, then giving, and then we take the other two dollars and we put them in the, you know, a stuffed animal jar, right? Buy whatever you want. Waste it at that age. But uh, that's just find creative ways to teach your children. And then there's informal teaching. Informal teaching is just taking advantage of the opportunities that you have to teach them as you go through life, as they come up. Maybe you're, I don't know, sitting out on the porch or something and there's a rainbow after the rainstorm. What a perfect opportunity to tell them about what the rainbow means. Yeah, all right, let's go to Genesis 9. Let's look at the rainbow. What does this mean? It's God's promise not to flood the world again. Oh, yeah, did you know that the reason we have so many fossils today is because of the flood? Fossils aren't being made today. Did you know that? It's a result of the worldwide flood. That's why we find sea creatures on top of Mount Everest, fossilized. Okay, because God flooded the whole earth. I mean, you just take, care, take advantage of opportunities. Uh, yesterday. Uh, we were harvesting sweet corn. All afternoon, um, you know what I taught my kids about? I had no idea John Labar was going to talk about sowing and reaping in Sunday school. But we talked about sowing and reaping. There, we we'd, you know, we we sowed this corn a long time ago, in the spring, and now we're reaping what we've sown. And so I taught my Oldest one who could understand this: the decisions you make come with reward or consequence. Whatever you sow in your decisions, that's what you're going to reap—either a reward or a consequence. Uh, if we're faithful with a little bit, God will bless us with much. Right? It only took one little seed to give us a whole kernel or a whole ear of corn—corn kernels—and it, it's amazing how kids love those kind of like. Uh, lessons just throughout the day. Maybe, let's say, here's another good one. This might be the most important one. Teach them how to repent when you screw up. Don't be so proud that you can't admit to your children when you're wrong. If you fail to do that, they ain't going to want nothing to do with your faith. You can't admit to them when you're wrong and apologize and repent and ask for forgiveness. They ain't going to want nothing to do with you they need to know the gospel is for you too. They can see through you. They know you're not perfect. And so one of the best things you can do is just teach them how to repent by repenting yourself and walking, continuing to walk in God's grace. Not just saying, I screwed up and going into despair, but no, you live in light of the gospel of grace. And you say, all right, we're moving on in God's grace. But they learn to walk with God as you walk with God. And so... um, Critical to that is just building and maintaining relationships. That's the next point. Sorry my message is so long today. I pray every single week for God to shorten my messages. It just doesn't happen. I guess my prayers just aren't that powerful. Uh, just kidding. Build your relationships with your children. If you want to pass on the faith, build relationships with your children. The stronger your relationship is with your child, the more likely they're going to embrace your values and beliefs too look at relationships as a bridge for truth to travel across from heart to heart. Truth travels best through relationships, and in your notes are several ways of doing that that I got from Chip Ingram's effective parenting study. Okay, spend quality time with them. Uh, then there's just two areas I want to highlight that are critical. Number one, teach them about identity. Teach them about identity. Identity is the child's foundation that our culture is trying to sweep away right now. They don't even want your kids to understand what gender they are. You understand how depraved that is? You understand why we have so much hopelessness and despair among our youth and why they're all on pills? Because they don't understand they were created in the image of God. They don't even understand their gender. Teach them their gender. Teach them God created them. Teach them that God loves them. He died for them. Teach them that they're a unique masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. They are unique. They are a unique person. There's billions, trillions of people who have lived throughout the world, but there is no one like them. There is no one like you. You have a unique personality, gifts, spiritual gifts, talents, resources, temperament, you are a unique human being. There is no one like you that has ever lived in the world. And you are a brick in God's household that hold, that builds God's house. And you need to know that you, without that brick, that house is weakened. Okay? God made you for a purpose. He, 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 you have meaning. You have purpose. You have life in Christ. Teach them that their identity is not in what they do. It's not in... in and how they feel their identity is in Christ, that's where they're going to find meaning and purpose. And uh, as parents, we want to help them discover who God made them to be. Because God, get this, God determined every aspect of their personhood. Did you know that? God determined their personhood, who they would be, what they would be like. He determined their temperaments, He determined their gifts, their interests. And so as parents, we want to discover what those are. What is that child's bent? Right? Not their sin nature bent, but what are they bent towards? What are they interested in? And we want to seek to kindle that, because God has put that in them. So in his book, Helping Your Unique Child Thrives, I, I like this illustration by Bill Hendricks. He shared a good one. It, it's, it's about Harry the Hammer and Larry the Screwdriver. Harry the Hammer has a son named Larry the Screwdriver. Convinced that Larry is going to hammer nails too, he pushes Larry the screwdriver to hammer nails. And he just keeps pushing him in that direction. It's a lot like a football dad living his glory days through his son who has no interest in football whatsoever, right? Harry's got to figure out, Larry is not a hammer. He was designed to drive screws, not hammer nails. And, and Harry has to learn to mentor his son in whatever God determined his personhood would be like. So as parents, we try to follow those God-given drives of each child because each child is different. Don't treat them all the same. You'll exasperate them. And uh, don't push them so hard in what their interest is that it's not theirs anymore, and you kind of take it over. There's a balance there. And then lastly, teach them to do hard things. Teach them to do hard things. Teach them to get their hands dirty. Don't you love that picture? Get their hands dirty. See, Jesus was a realist with his disciples. He didn't embellish the Christian life. He didn't say it's all flowers and rose petals. Christian life is difficult sometimes. It's hard to follow Christ. It's hard to swim against the tide of the culture. It's not easy. He said, you're going to have many troubles in this life. He actually prophesied Islam and the Antichrist world religion that's coming, which says you're going to get your head taken off for following me. Teach your kids to do hard things. And you'll remember it if I put it this way. Have a conservative form of government in your home that teaches freedom, hard work, risk, and reward. Freedom, hard work, risk, and reward. You don't keep giving handouts to a lazy child, do you? You see to it that they learn to work hard and experience both the frustrations of failure and the joys of, of, of winning. The joy of rewards for their hard work. Get them involved in something that's going to challenge them. I, we just had 4-H, right? Challenging. Did you know ancient Rome, if you wanted to be a member of the Roman Republic, you had to be an agrarian in some fashion. You had to be a farmer in the ag business in order to be a citizen of ancient Rome. Isn't that interesting? You know why? Because it was seen as virtuous. Virtuous. takes a lot of hard work to be an agrarian, to be in the ag world, doesn't it? takes a lot of hard work, takes a lot of diligence, faithfulness, hope, planting those seeds, self-control, and it teaches tenderness too, you learn to be tender with things, cultivation, husbandry. So uh, yesterday my kids worked hard helping out harvesting sweet corn and beans, and it was, it was good for them, it challenged them, and I made sure I wasn't going to do it all for them, but it was good. So that's just an example of what you might get your kids involved in. Uh, My challenge as we leave here today is just uh, spend some quality time with each of your kids. Spend some quality time with each of your kids. Build that relational bridge that's gonna pass on the faith. Tell them you love them. Please do not withhold that from them. I wanna cry when I think of parents who can't tell their kids that they love them. They need that. Don't rob them of that. And then ask how you can pray for them specifically Pray for them and their needs. Get eye to eye with them. Get on their level and invest in your children.